Well, I'm a bit of a superhero tragic. Uh, I used to think that being Superman would be cool. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a superhero kind of guy, and Superman is the ultimate, and he's my favourite. And to give you a feel of just uh, how much I like superheroes, about six weeks ago, I literally sat down and thought about what would it be like to really be Superman. And I started thinking about all the strength and the power and the capabilities and being able to help anyone in almost any situation. I could fly. But then it dawned on me that it'd be terrible to be Superman. Oh, he's powerful, sure, but he's good. He's always trying to help people. And so if I really was Superman, I'd have to choose who to help. I'd have to choose between stopping that car accident in Dubbo, the house fire in London, and the earthquake victims in California. And how do you make that choice? How, how do you say no to somebody and yes to somebody else? And how does Superman do that every moment of his life? How would he sleep at night knowing all those people that he could have saved but didn't? Their agonised faces would haunt him. If Superman did exist, he'd be a mental case. Being powerful and good, that's a tricky combination. So let me ask us some questions. Do we believe in the absolute goodness of God? Do we believe in the absolute power of God? Numbers chapters 10 to 12 confront us with both God's goodness and his power. He is both and he is both perfectly. And so Numbers impresses on us that as we make our way to the true promised land, we're to believe in his goodness and his power no matter what is happening around us, no matter what would be telling us that he's not good and he's not powerful, we're to trust him and his goodness and his power and we're to make sure that we all do. In Numbers, uh, remember, Old Testament Israel is being prepared to go to the promised land. Uh, God's had them encamped at Mount Sinai for more than a year, and in chapter 10, it's time to move out. And you can just imagine the buzz of the people, can't you? Uh, there'd be comments like, we're finally leaving. Uh, do you reckon uh, you'll grow grapes or grain? Uh, what part of the land are we going to be given? Now, out of all the conversations that would have been happening that day as they left Mount Sinai for the first time, there's one that's been recorded for us. And that's because there's one person who doesn't want to go to the promised land. Moses' brother-in-law, Hobab, he's not a native Israelite, and he wants to go back to his people and to his land. And so Moses tries to convince Hobab to stay with them because Moses is convinced of both God's goodness and his power. And so anyone who knows of him, as Hobab does now, he should follow the Lord to the promised land. We'll pick it up in verse 29 of chapter 10. Verse 29 of chapter 10. Now Moses said to Hobab, son of Ruel, the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law, we're setting out for the place about which the Lord said, I will give it to you. Come with us and we will treat you well, for the Lord has promised good things to Israel. He answered, no. I will not go. I'm going back to my own land and my own people. But Moses said, please do not leave us. You know where we should camp in the desert and you can be our eyes. If you come with us, we will share with you whatever good things the Lord gives us. See, the reason that Moses and the Israelites are heading for the promised land is because they believe in the goodness of the Lord. The Lord has promised good things to Israel. We'll share with you whatever good things he gives us. 
And Moses also believes in the power of God. Have a look at verse 35. Verse 35. Whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Rise up, O Lord. May your enemies be scattered. May your foes flee before you. You see, Moses knew that the Lord went before them to defeat their enemies. He was going to give them the land. He was powerful to give them the land. He was good, and so he would give them the land. That's what God's people are meant to be like as they travel to the promised land, believing in the goodness and in the power of God. And so, of course, the same is true of us today, isn't it? As we make our way to the promised land, to God's new creation, we're to believe in God, having confidence in his power and in his goodness. Uh, Moses looked back to the Exodus to be filled with confidence. We look back to the empty tomb of the Lord Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, seated at the throne of God, having defeated all enemies. We are to believe in the goodness and in the, pro- and in the power of God. And to help us to see the reality of God's goodness and power and the wisdom of trusting him as we make our way to the new creation. Chapters 11 and 12 give us three ways the Old Testament Israelites refused to believe in the goodness and power of God. And what we're meant to see as we read chapters 11 and 12 is both the greatness of God and the folly of not trusting him. And the first thing Old Testament Israel does in chapter 11 is accuse God of bringing evil upon them. Chapter 11 and verse 1. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord, and when he heard them, his anger was aroused. Then fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. When the people cried out to Moses, he prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So that place was called Taberah because fire from the Lord had burned among them. We're told that the people complained about their hardships. Uh, The Hebrew for the word hardships is actually evil. Uh, The Israelites here, instead of believing in God's goodness, now believe that God is bringing evil upon them, which is outrageous. This is the very generation of Israelites that God rescued out of Egypt from slavery. God's been feeding them in the desert with manna so that they won't starve. They've just left Mount Sinai to go to the promised land and it's not going to be long. Deuteronomy tells us it just takes a week and a half to get there. And yet this generation deny God's goodness and accuse him of bringing evil upon them. Now sure their time in the desert wasn't rosy, they weren't enjoying milk and honey yet, but it's an awful mistake to interpret the difficulties of life as God bringing evil. Uh, It's a bit like my friend from uh, my teaching days, Uh, Liam was his name, he's a good Aussie bloke, Uh, enjoyed a good laugh, Uh, was very good at helping people out. But whenever something went wrong in Liam's life, he would always look up at the sky and say, why me? I'm one of the good guys. Uh, He was blaming God for his hardships, accusing God of bringing evil into his life. Now, Liam wasn't Christian, but sometimes we can fall into this sort of thinking, can't we? Particularly when thing after thing goes wrong. A relative gets cancer. And then you lose your job. Your best friend gives up on Jesus. Your aunt is killed by a drunken driver. Thieves break into your house and invade your privacy, steal your belongings. Sometimes things just pile up, don't they? And it can be hard in those times not to think that God's got it in for you. 
And can I say that if you are going through one of these times right now, hang in there. It's not easy. And let us know how we can help. And keep believing in the goodness and the power of God. Hang in there. Because God uses everything, even tragedy, to strengthen our trust in God. He can even use heartache, difficulty, to produce kingdom righteousness in us because he's preparing us, isn't he, for eternal life in the new creation where nothing goes wrong. And so when it does feel like God's got it in for you, look back to the cross and look forward to the return of Christ. God is good and he's powerful enough to bring it all home. Old Testament Israel's second denial of God's goodness and power uh, comes in the form of the Israelites wanting to go back to Egypt. Uh, They longed for the food of Egypt. Despite the slavery and the tyranny of Egypt, they rejected the plans of God of taking them into the promised land. Uh, Chapter 11 and verse verse 4. The rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost, also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions and garlics, but now we've lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. And Moses flips his lid. He's had enough. But it's not the people of Israel that he's angry with. It's, well, let's have a read, verse 10, verse 10. Moses heard the people of every family wailing, each at the entrance to his tent. The Lord became exceedingly angry and Moses was troubled. He asked the Lord, why have you brought this trouble on your servant? The word here for trouble is again the word for evil. What have I done to displease you that that you put the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised on earth to their forefathers? Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me, give us meat to eat. I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden's too heavy for me. If this is how you're going to treat me, put me to death right now if I found favour in your eyes and do not let me face my own ruin. Have you ever felt like that? Uh, Hopefully you haven't asked God to wipe you out. Um, But have you ever felt like crying out, why me? Why me? Why am I the one that has to deal with all this? Why doesn't anyone help? Doesn't anyone care? You can understand Moses' frustration here. But the sad truth is, he's denying the goodness of God, accusing God of bringing evil upon him. And yet God responds with kindness. He gives Moses 70 elders to help him look after the people. And God also promises to give the people meat. But in response to this kindness, Moses casts more doubt against God. He's not having a good day this day. Moses questions the power of God to deliver the meat. Verse 21, verse 21. But Moses said, here I am among 600,000 men on foot and you say, I'll give them meat to eat for a whole month? Would they have enough if flocks and herds were slaughtered for them? Would they have enough if all the fish in the sea were caught for them? The Lord answered Moses, Is the Lord's arm too short? You will now see whether or not what I say will come true for you. As if getting meat for a crowd of people is a problem for God. God's more than powerful enough enough, and so of course he gives them meat and sends a great wind that drives a great flock of quail into the camp. 
And what we need to remember in all of this is that it was all started by Old Testament Israel wanting to go back to Egypt. They wanted the food and the life that they had back in slavery. They didn't want the freedom to be the people of God. They didn't want to travel to the promised land. They didn't want the promised land. They doubted the goodness and the power of God and they spurned him for the life of slavery in Egypt. And as those who've been set free from the slavery of sin, we too can be tempted to doubt the goodness of God. He set us free from sin so that we can now live in obedience to God and yet sometimes we grow weary of doing good. For example, we can tire, and you can understand this, we can tire of looking after people before we look after ourselves. It'd be easier, wouldn't it, if we could just go about our own lives and look after ourselves and not be a burden on anyone else. Like a hospital without patients, our lives would be easier without the problems of others. But God says we're to serve each other, just like he served us, even to death. Just like he served us, we're to serve others. And we need to trust God that his ways are good, Like we saw last week, it's by his good and powerful word that he's taking us home to the new creation. And so we need to continue to trust God in his goodness to live in obedience and to serve the people around us. Now, the last sorry episode of unbelief from Israel comes in chapter 12. Uh, Moses' brother and sister, Aaron and Miriam, uh, they grumble against Moses because They want to be on an equal footing with Moses. They want a share of the limelight to be in a a powerful position as Moses. Chapter 12 and verse 1. Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses? They asked. Hasn't he also spoken through us? And the Lord heard this. See, Aaron and Miriam want to be on a par with Moses. But God's answer is swift and decisive. Skip down to verse 6. Verse 6, God said to Aaron and Miriam, Listen to my words. When a prophet of the Lord is among you, I reveal myself to him in visions. I speak to him in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak face to face, clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? The anger of the Lord burned against them, and he left them. And when the cloud lifted from above the tent, there stood Miriam, leprous like snow. Now what we're seeing here in Aaron and Miriam is a rejection of God's goodness to Israel. God has been very generous to Old Testament Israel. He'd given them Moses as their leader, and he spoke with with Moses intimately, directly, face to face, as he says. Through Moses, the Israelites had wonderful access to God, and yet here, Aaron and Miriam want to share some of that limelight. Uh, They're rejecting God's goodness in his appointed leader, and instead they want a selfish share of the fame. Now for us, our leader, well, he is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And we're not to deny the goodness of God in the gift of his Son as our Lord. We're not to grasp at an equal footing with Christ Jesus. Have you ever been in a group of people where the boss or the leader 
is uh, always being undermined. Uh, they put forward suggestions or ideas, and the first thing that always happens is the same person always comes up with why that idea is not going to work. And then they shove their idea in front of everyone else because they want to be the one who calls the shots. Uh, someone else has been appointed in charge, their boss, but they want a share of the position and the power and the prestige. It's annoying, isn't it, and painful to be in meetings where this happens. Now, our leader is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the appointed Lord and judge of all, and we're not to grasp at an equal footing with him. He's the Messiah. We're not. And so we're to revel in the goodness of God that Jesus is our boss. Jesus is our Lord. He's the one that speaks to God on our, on our behalf, in our defence. And so we gladly follow his lead. As we thought about last week, we gladly obey his word and we help others to do the same. Now let's just take a bit of a stock of what we've seen in these chapters. Chapters 1 to 10 last week, obedient Israel, marching to the promised land, trusting in God's goodness and power. But here in chapters 11 and 12, belief turns into unbelief. And as we keep reading Numbers, and indeed the rest of the Old Testament, we find that Israel continues to fail to trust in God. Over and over again, they live in disobedience and rebellion. The prophets promise that one day God's people would be wholehearted and faithful to God. But when we get to the Old Testament and it still hasn't happened, we're wondering when the real people of God, the people who will trust in God's goodness and power, when will they show up? Enter Jesus. In faithfulness to his promises, God himself comes to be the obedient people of God. The Lord Jesus succeeds where everyone else fails. He always trusted in God, even to death. And he did it to make up for the fact that we don't. Through the death of Christ, we can have all of our failures dealt with. And so the focus of our trust in Christ is now on Jesus as the one who can get us into God's new creation. It's through his death and resurrection in our place that we are made right with God. And so we're to trust in the goodness and in the power of God expressed in Jesus Christ. Now, Old Testament Israel, they failed to trust in God. And the writer to the Hebrews says that we should make sure we don't make the same mistake. So turn across to Hebrews with me and Hebrews chapter 4. In Hebrews 4, the writer is uh, teaching us that the promise of entering God's rest, the new creation, that promise still stands, which means that we need to make sure that none of us miss out. We need to make sure that we all remain trusting in the goodness and power of God, unlike what Old Testament is ready. Chapter 4 and verse 1. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because those who heard did not combine it with faith. Entering into God's rest, we're told all we need to do is have our faith in the gospel, God's good news. We simply need to trust in the goodness and in the power of God to take our sins away through the death of Christ. And notice, please, that in these verses, there's a corporate nature to it. It's let us be careful that none of you 
fall short of it. Trusting in the goodness and power of God to get us into the new creation, it's only through Jesus that that can happen. And so we are to make sure that none of us miss out. This is the kingdom edge to life in a church family. We're not Rotary. We're not a soccer club. We're here to make sure no one misses out on the eternal life in the new creation. And it's this exciting kingdom edge that's the backbone to connect to build. Let's get to know each other better so that we can better build each other up in Christ, doing what we can to make sure that no one misses out. And as I said earlier in the meeting, we need to be clear that Connect to Build is not simply a series of events that will be running throughout the year. It's a mindset. It's our goal for the year. And so during the year, we'll be looking for opportunities to connect to build. It could be as easy and as valuable as ringing each other up to see how we're doing. When you notice that someone hasn't been to church for a while, uh, don't just tell someone else about it. Ring them up. Connect with them to build them up in Christ. And we can also connect to build here on a Sunday morning. Uh, It could be that there's people here in your church family that you don't know very well. Uh, You aren't even sure of their name. And look, that's okay. But let's all make a point of uh, each Sunday, week by week, talking to at least one person we don't know very well. Uh, Now that might be a little bit awkward at first. Uh, You've seen this face for the last year or so, but... You've never really actually spoken to them and you don't even know your name. But that's okay. Let's just hook in and connect with one another and to build each other up. And if we do this week by week before long, we're going to all know each other quite well and we can help each other better to remain trusting in Christ. Our small groups, they're another way, an excellent way to connect, to build. Reading of Christ, thinking of him, how to live for him and doing it together. Let's commit to our Bible study groups and be involved with purpose. And there are going to be various Connect to Build events on the calendar. Uh, And whether it's a whole church event or a men's event or a women's event or whatever it is, they'll all be on about our eternal life in Jesus Christ and making sure our brothers and sisters don't miss out. And so when these events first come up on the calendar, we need to be thinking, how can we make them work? It might be tricky. It might be inconvenient. It might be costly, but what we're investing in is the eternal life of our brothers and sisters in Christ, our family, our church family. And of course, there's going to be more ways. We're only limited by our imagination. But what we need to see is that our connector build is our goal, it's our mindset. We're committing to each other's lives so that we'll help each other stand firm, be it triumph or tragedy, whatever comes We'll be there for each other to help each other to remain trusting in the Lord Jesus. Because on the day he comes back, or the day we bury each other, we want to make sure that we're all trusting in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because the promise of entering God's rest still stands. And so let's be careful that none of us be found to have fallen short of it. So let's connect to build. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that your promise of entering your rest still stands. 
Thank you that through Christ Jesus, our Lord, and his death in our place, entry into your eternal life, your creation, your new creation, is guaranteed because of him. And so we pray your help. Please, that we might always trust in him to take away our sins, that we might be yours forever. And Father, we pray for us as a church family that we would do whatever it takes to make sure that none of us fall short of it. Father, please do this, that in our lives, now and forever, we'll bring you praise and glory and honour because you so richly deserve them. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.